in Living Hope, and this is our theme for 2019, is that we don't want to just do ministry. We don't want to just do Christianity. Uh, we want to be transformed. Uh, we want the Spirit of God to empower uh, the things that we do. Uh, we want uh, Jesus to really get the glory. And the third and final element, of course, is mission. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. And he's reminding the disciples that this is their mission, that we're called to bring this living hope of Jesus Christ uh, to a world that desperately needs him. And so this year, as we focus on this idea of transformation, uh, we want to be praying and really believing, being excited that, that God is going to bring spiritual change into this church, into every person as you're sitting here today that a year from now, you're going to look back and sit, you'd be sitting in the same chair maybe a year from now, you're looking back and saying, praise God for the ways in which he has uh, changed me, the ways in which he has made me different than I was a year ago because of, of walking with Jesus this year. And so that's what we want to be continuing to pray, pray on. And let's, let's go ahead and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you and praise you because um, this is something, as we look at this, this is something you want to do, Lord. Uh, it's not something we force you to do. It's not something we ask you to do or demand for you to do. Uh, but God, it's something that you, in your word, already promised that you desire to do. And you are the one who is asking us, to, uh, to present ourselves as these living sacrifices to you. You are the one who is inviting us to be a part of your work in this world, Lord. You are the one who is inviting us to, uh, to show uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the, the treasure that you already placed inside of us because of the love of, uh, and, the, and, and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that even this year together as Living Hope and, and each of us and all of our families, Lord, that we would uh, uh, present ourselves as these sacrifices to you, that you would have the freedom to mold and to move and to do whatever you want to do in our lives uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ, um, whether it be a good year or even just a rough year, Lord, uh, we surrender to you that you would do whatever needs to be done so that we would be more like Jesus Christ, so that uh, more people will come to know uh, the hope of Jesus that we, that we know, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you, and, uh, and we lift this church, and we lift one another before you, Lord. May Jesus have all the glory in everything, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're going to be continuing our sermon series on uh, being a, a gracious community in an angry world. And we established last week that our world is filled with vitriol. And vitriol means really just bitter and cruel uh, criticism that, that we as followers of Jesus Christ need to learn how to navigate this growing kind of polarized community. How can we be disciples? How can we be a light uh, in this very angry world. And, and we saw that, that, that Jesus is calling us really to, to follow him, to be this community of faith that, that, that we're going to have an undaunted faith to really believe that, that, that God can, can overcome the anger in this world with the love of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we want to know that, believe that, Jesus, that God is more powerful than all the forces in this world, that, that Jesus is worth um, the sacrifices of following a different path than the world. 
that if we follow Jesus, that the sacrifices that come, that we will say uh, we're not complaining, that we really believe that it's worth it because Jesus uh, is worthy. And so I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And let's uh, stand in reverence for the word of God. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy and the words of God to us. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, for no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he cooperates according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins its hearers. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. From this passage, we're going to see that a gracious community is a community that is committed to discipleship. And what I'd like to do is actually start from the last verse, verse 14. Paul's in prison and he writes to Timothy and he's saying to Timothy as a pastor, saying, remind them, remind the followers of Jesus Christ of these things. That, that, that Remind them that these are the most important truths that they must stand by. And what are these truths that Paul is speaking of? Well, it's everything that preceded verse 14. That in verse 1, he talks about being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, meaning be filled by the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit of God, because that's the only way that you really can shine for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, it says, what you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And this is, again, the picture of discipleship. He's saying, give yourselves to the work of discipleship. Remind the people Remind everyone, uh, every follower of Jesus Christ, that we are to be disciplers, to disciple and to be discipled. And then verse 3 through 6, he talks about standing firm and, and fighting the good fight, that these, this work of discipleship is not easy, that it's a matter of like a soldier in a fight, an athlete in a competition, a hardworking farmer who's waiting for his crops. And then finally in verse 8, he talks about Jesus Christ. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and he's reminding Paul, uh, reminding Timothy, say, remind the believers, keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ, that he is the one that drives everything you do and his everything. He is your life. And so Paul is, is exhorting Timothy, saying, persevere in this ministry of discipleship. Remind every follower of Jesus Christ to do the same, to grow deeper in Jesus every moment, to produce the fruit of the Spirit everywhere you go, to, to be about multiplying that ministry, that it's not just about ourselves and what God does for us, but God wants to use us to continue to make disciples of others. And, and why was Paul saying to, to Timothy, remind everyone of these things? Uh, it's because we're in the last days. 
And if you skip down to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins to describe the condition of a world without Jesus. And he says in verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And we look at these things, you know, we think about these things, and, and, and we think about our world in which we live, and we see that this is really the effect of sin in the world in which we live, is the influence of the lies of Satan in the actions and the lives around us. And, and, and as we look at what Paul is describing in Timothy's world, he's saying that these last days were really any time, the whole time between when Jesus ascended to when Jesus returned. So these things were happening at the time of Jesus. We look at our time right now, and we see that, um, in a sense, uh, it's the same. And as mentioned, I'm taking some of the cues from uh, this book called Christians in an Age of Outrage, written by Ed Stetzer. And Ed Stetzer, what he does is he points out uh, some of the major cultural shifts that are contributing to the polarization of our community, of the uh, increasing the anger and indeed the vitriol uh, between people in our world. And one of the, the, the first cultural shift that he explains is this idea of the rise, he calls the rise of the nuns, okay? Now, this is why PowerPoint is really good, because if I said in, you know, just verbally, you would think, you know, the rise of the nuns. <laughs> but actually, this is the rise of the nuns. And uh, nuns actually are the Americans uh, who say that they don't identify with any religion. See, demographers uh, have given this name to this group of people because when they do the, uh, the census, right, and you say, what religion are you? And they say, you know, Christian, Muslim, all these things. There's a category called none. And so if you, if you, if you click that one, that means you're a nun. You have no religion, no religious affiliation. And so the Pew Research Center has been looking at this study and been saying that the nuns are actually on the rise, that one-fifth of American adults now have no religious affiliation, that this is a trend that has for years been continuing to grow more and more. And in a nutshell, basically these nuns are, they're not just atheists and agnostics, but they're people who really um, say we're religious, we're, we're spiritual, we may pray, but we don't identify with any religion, with any type of organized faith, uh, and, and, and we're not looking for that. And what's interesting, or actually what's striking, is that one-third of Americans under 30 uh, compose these nuns. Okay, so the, basically what is happening is that uh, compared to previous generations, particularly among the younger, uh, 30 and below, it says young people today are not only more religiously unaffiliated than their elders, they are also more religiously unaffiliated than previous generations of young people ever have been as far as back as we can tell. Meaning that, 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 that for, the, for people under 30, uh, we have the largest group of people now who identify themselves as having absolutely no religion. 
They don't want to be identified with any religion at all. And so it used to be that in our country, a lot of people would consider themselves Christian. Even though they weren't going to church, even though they weren't really you know, saved, they would at least say, well, uh, you know, my background or my heritage is Christian, so I'll mark that. Or I believe in Jesus, and uh, I believe in God, and so I'll mark that. Or I'm an American, so I'm Christian, I'll mark that. But nowadays, uh, basically more and more nominal, uh, who would consider themselves nominal Christians are calling themselves now nuns. And basically their mindset is growing more and more secular. People are having less and less affinity or attachment to uh, our Christian roots that maybe, you know, was now, it used to be maybe one generation ago, but now maybe it's two generations or even three generations separated now. And this is why as we think about this, uh, the Word of God, as we think about discipleship, why is the Word of God important? It's because our society is becoming less and less familiar with Christianity and with Jesus. It used to be before that if you talked about uh, uh, the gospel and you said something like, uh, we used to say, uh, well, if uh, you were to stand before the pearly gates and Peter were to ask, why should I let you in? Everybody knew what that meant. Nowadays, if you ask that, there'd be a lot of people who say, I have no idea what that means. Who's Peter? You know, what, what does this mean? Um, basically, you and I, as Christians, we're, we're slowly or quickly becoming the only wellspring of biblical truth in this country. In fact, I would imagine that even more Muslims probably know more about Jesus Christ than a lot of other people, you know, in this country. Because Jesus and the word of God is being pushed out of every realm of society, every conversation. That's why at, at, at Living Hope, we continue this need for biblical literacy, theological literacy, a Bible study. But why? Because Christian, your thinking, our thinking, our life, our worldview has to be grounded in a full understanding of God's word and how it applies to life. All of our thoughts, our opinions, reactions, our emotions, they must be underpinned not by, oh, this is what we do at church or this is what a uh, pastor tells me to do or this is what my parents uh, taught me to do, but no, it uh, must be by strong biblical truth really understand that I do this because of my understanding of what God wants through his word. You know, it used to be before that many American values had some Christian in them. But now it is not so. And pretty soon the only Christian is going to come from Christians. And Christians who know the word of God. And so as we begin this year, this new year, the world in this world of the nuns, we must be uh, a wellspring of biblical truth in our conversations, in our actions, in our thoughts and opinions, that the verses that you speak, uh, uh, the things that you say about Jesus and about God may be the only things that these people know about, uh, about faith, about the word of God. And I'm not talking about just foreigners from other countries. I'm talking about people in America right now, your neighbors, everyone around. Less and less are they knowing about biblical values, about what the scripture teaches. And, and, and we as disciples, that's why the word of God is so important for discipleship. The next cultural shift that exacerbates the antagonism is what is called the growth of new tribalism. 
<clears throat> what is new tribalism? Sounds like a you know, third world type of term, but actually it is an all world type of term. Tribalism is the act of determining your identity according to whose side you're on. Okay, so basically tribalism is, is how society now is beginning to be polarized in according to issues or groups. For example, you know, are you a Niners fan or a Raiders fan? You go to a game and people are like, you know, if you're wearing black, they're going to beat you up. If you're wearing red, they're going to beat you up. It's like no longer civil anymore because you're associated with a certain group of people. Um, are you a Ariana Grande or, you know, or Pete Davidson or... Lauren was telling me how to pronounce her name and I kept saying it wrong. But anyways, it's like, you know, which side are you on? You know, are you a CNN? Are you a Fox network? Are you, you know, do you say uh, illegal aliens or do you say undocumented immigrants? Because how you say things now determines what side you're on. And our culture is now determining, basically determining for us the different ways to identify ourselves in terms of groups. Are you a this? Are you a that? Do you associate with this? Oh, you say that? Oh, you're one of these people. And particularly in the political social arena, there's become a lot of, uh, of anger and hostility and vehemence in these identities uh, that, that pretty soon there's no common ground. You're either us or them. And if you're them, I don't want to have anything to do with you because I know exactly what you're like. I think I know exactly what you're like. And if you're one of us, then I assume that I know that you're exactly like me. And that's what, that's what tribalism is like. And Stetzer says that the level of polarization, uh, the level of tribalism in America, specifically around political identification, has reached such a point that we have begun to feel these divisions, that even Christians are allowing political and cultural identities rather than kingdom mission to drive their engagement with the world. Okay, think about that. He says, an unflinching devotion to a tribe not only pushes us, and he's talking about Christians, to fight against issues that are not connected to the gospel and don't advance the kingdom of God, but it also affects how we view others who disagree with us. And then he says, finally, they become opponents that we have to beat rather than lost people made in the image of God whom we are called to love and to extend God's grace. And really think about this. You know, we hear a word or we hear a thing and they say, oh, you're a Christian. You must blah, 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 blah. Or we see somebody with a rainbow and we say, oh, you're one of them. You must be blah, 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 blah. Or we see someone with a bumper sticker on their car. Oh, they must be one of them. They must think this way. And we're already like angry at them and we don't even know them. I haven't even met them. I just read their bumper sticker and sometimes already in my mind, I mean me, I'm, in my mind I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, that person doesn't know what he's talking about. Or that person, you know, I, I start thinking these things in my mind about a person that I never met. And I'm already thinking negative thoughts about them because of this tribalism. This, this, this conditioning that the world, it's not a Christian thing. The world is, 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 is 
pushing this upon us. And, 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 and discipleship in 2019, we need to have our identity firmly grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. We need to understand what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God that it transcends all other tribal loyalties. We stand for the kingdom. We live for the kingdom. We need to find our self-worth, our identity in Jesus and Jesus alone, not in my workplace. Sometimes I think, oh, uh, who I am is, is how I work, so I start judging people according to work. Oh, well, if you're a manager, you're this. Oh, if you're uh, this, you're this. Oh, you work for that company. Well, I know about that company, you know, what they're like. Oh, you know, this culture, that culture. Uh, if we define ourselves by... Um, uh, our, our, by, by how much money we make or what car we make, what car we drive or things like that or worldly acceptance and we're trying to say, well, I want to make sure that people realize that I'm this. That's why I'm going to drive this car. That's why I'm going to talk this way. That's why I'm going to dress this way because I want people to think of me as this so I'm not one of those. And basically what we're doing is we're saying, I want something else to be my identity other than Jesus Christ. I want to communicate to others that I am part of this group rather than part of the, the kingdom of God. And, 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 and we need to be very careful because that's what the world just keeps pushing us in. And even in school, when you go to high school or when you go to school and it's always this group or that group, which group am I going to be identified with? If I'm with this group, what are they going to think of me? If I'm with this group, what's she going to think of me? And it's always about who my identity is, is, is about who I'm with and who I associate with. And it's no longer because I associate with Jesus Christ. I stand for Jesus. That's the most important thing in my life. And I'll stand with others, but people need to recognize that that's my primary who I am is, is, is I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a citizen of the kingdom. And we could say I love my country and I don't like the things that are happening or I have a stand on this issue or that issue and, and, and I want to speak out on these particular issues and I think that's very, very good and it's very needed. But we also remember it's not our identity because this is not our country, it's not our home, or it's not our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's the only place where we're really going to see full and complete justice and full and complete compassion. Um, and, and also, uh, this teaches us that we must treat everyone as Jesus treated them. That tribalism uh, reduces people to a stereotype, to a generalization, that we say, oh, it's that type of person. I know what they're like, or et cetera, et cetera. Jesus was the one who broke down barriers, right? I mean, he's the one that took his disciples into Samaria, and said, you know, let's go. We got to go to Samaria. And, and God, because why? Because he says, I want you disciples to realize that God loves the Samaritans just as much as he loves your people. In fact, he said to them, you can't even think about your people anymore because your people don't exist. Jesus said, who are my mother and who are my brothers? It's not the Jewish people. It's not your people. It's those who hear my words and obey me. Now the kingdom of God is no longer uh, tribal. The kingdom of God is salvation. It is anyone who believes in the words of Jesus Christ and follows him. The disciples of Jesus Christ, we are disciples. We must reach across the line. Last night I went to this totally like hipster wedding. I mean, like it was crazy. It, why is it hipster? Because it was I looked at the map, and it was like in the middle of West Oakland. And if you've been in Oakland, okay, I've lived in Oakland all my life, and I've never 
been to West Oakland. Only once in my life. Why? Because if you go to West Oakland, you die, basically. You never come back. It's like, just don't go to West Oakland. Like, literally, honestly, my ent- I lived in Oakland all my life, and we never, never went to West Oakland. So I look at the map in this, this wedding, and it's like, it's, this is in the heart of West Oakland. What the heck, you know? And we're driving there, and it's like in this train station. And it's an abandoned train station. Now, literally, it's like, it's like an abandoned train station. It's like a demolished building. It had you know, fences all around it. And I was looking at it going, I think we got the wrong address. And I really thought that this was like some kind of scam. Like we were going to go in and they were going to kill us or something. No, seriously. I mean, you know, you grow up in Oakland. This is what you think. Anyways, and, and you know, I'm worried about where to park my car and things like that. Literally, we drove through these really bad neighborhoods and came to this thing. I'm like, what the heck? Where's the wedding, you know? Then we walk inside this abandoned train station and the whole thing is gutted out. And inside is beautiful. I mean, they just got these lights and, and everything, and, and the decorations are organic to the, the actual, the, this is like a, a 1800, you know, 1800 train station. It's beautiful inside. Well, some people say it took, looks horrible. I mean, it does. It looks like a drug den. But, <laughs> but, but it was beautiful inside, and I was like, man, this is like a total hipster wedding, you know? And, and I was like telling Rita, oh man, this is so hipster, it's driving me crazy. And, uh, but then I would look at these guys, you know, and I try to look past, you know, their long facial hair, I look past their bow ties, look past their suspenders, look past their black bowler hats, and I was like, you know, they're just guys. They're, 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 they're my tribe. These believers, they're, they're my tribe, they're, they're me. And, and the ones who don't know Jesus Christ, they're the tribe of the lost. That Jesus is reaching out with all his heart. It's not a hipster, it's not a this or a that. Um, they're, they're people, they're our tribe. They're the people that Jesus really wants to reach. And so Christian, do not let new tribalism define who you are in Jesus Christ. Don't let the world take away your identity in Jesus Christ because if, if it does, you're going to feel miserable. And do not let it make you look at people in any other way than someone for whom Jesus died, Christian or not Christian. That's who they are. No matter what they look like, no matter who they are, they live in West Oakland, uh, which I never go and I feel bad now. I never went in my life. But those are people there for whom Jesus died. That's, that, that's, that's who they are. That's what it means to be a disciple, to know and believe and to feel that this, and, and, and to really live in a world in this way, that we do cross over the line, that we do say, those people in school that I never, in my whole entire school time, would ever go and talk to, those people at work or these places at work where I never would never would walk down there, or this place in neighborhoods that I would never uh, go and talk to them, or these stores where I would never shop, or whatever, things like that. Um, We as Christians, we must be the ones who who reach across and who minister and and be those uh, disciples. That's what a disciple is. That's what Jesus did. Final major cultural shift, and this is not a recent one, but that's the area of technology. How has technology served to heighten the animosity in our society? Uh, What does it mean to be a disciple in a digital age? Now, there's a lot of things to cover here, but I just want to focus on one particular issue that Stetzer brought up that I thought was really interesting and something that was really on my heart, and that is this, what is called a Jekyll and Hyde effect. 
Okay, now Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a story about one man who has two natures, right? Dr. Jekyll is a civil, well-respected member of society, and Mr. Hyde is this murderous killer, right? Now, I never actually read the book, but I did see the episode on Star Trek called The Enemy Within and Mirror Mirror, where they had the good Kirk and the evil Kirk, and that's, of course, Shatner overacting. And uh, basically, uh, this was this idea that, you know, there's a good side of you and there's an evil side of you and things like that, and they're always fighting with each other and things like that. But psychologists actually have noticed that there is a contrast, they've been studying that there's this contrast between people's private, on, private lives and personal lives and their online personas. And they actually gave it a name, they call it um, online disinhibition effect. Okay, online disinhibition effect. Now, you can tell by the word what it kind of means. Okay, online disinhibition is the lack of restraint that one feels when communicating online in comparison to communicating in person. Meaning that when you communicate online, there's certain things that you start letting out because it's online that you would never do when you're communicating in person, okay? That's online disinhibition. So uh, on one hand, people will say, some, some uh, psychologists will say, this is a good thing, you know, young people are able to share things openly that they wouldn't share in person. Some people say, well, that's a kind of therapeutic that they can share so many things, and that's why when you go online, you're wondering, why do all these young people share such private things that sound so, oh, you know, I would never share these things, but feeling online saying, now I can share all these things. Um, but there's also a very dark side to online communication, that there's, there's outrage, there's violence, Violence. There's hatred, vitriol again, expressed online that, that, that when you meet the person in person, they're like a normal, calm, very public, you know, in public they're a very calm, nice person. See, the Jekyll and Hyde effect leads to this idea of flaming, and I have to look that up because I, I keep hearing the word flaming and I kind of know what it is and then I looked it up and then I looked and i like, oh, yeah, I, I understand. I know exactly what flaming is. It's terrible because I try to avoid all the comments on the bottom because it drives me nuts. I get really, really upset when I start reading the comments underneath whatever goes on. There's so much flaming and it's like if somebody said those things to me to my face, I would just walk away. I would turn my back because I couldn't listen to these type of words and, and, and I couldn't imagine somebody saying this to my face. Uh, it leads to uh, uh, cyberbullying where they start doing things to people where, again, you wouldn't do it to their face, uh, leads to teen suicide. And research has shown that, 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 that there are several influencing factors as to why people have this kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde uh, effect. Uh, the first thing is anonymity. Anonymity is when people don't know who you are, and when people don't know who you are, they're emboldened to say anything. Like if, if, if I don't have to take responsibility for, for identifying, you know, who I am and I can just write down, you know, uh, Mr. Hamster or whatever or, you know, Superstar or whatever and have this picture or this icon representing me, then I could say anything I want because nobody knows who I am and I can go after people and I could say all these terrible things and then I can go to school and say, hey, how's it going? How's life? Because it's anonymous. 
That's the first thing that, that, that encourages with this lack of accountability, it encourages people to say these things. The next thing they say is invisibility. The fact that, not that you're invisible, but the fact that you don't have to look somebody in the face tends to make you less sensitive about what you say. Because you can't see them, they can't see you. And so it, it leads to, uh, they say, uh, this insensitivity about how you say things and what you say and, and how it affects other people because you can't see how it affects them. When you say something mean and somebody gets really sad, you go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. But if you don't see them and you say something mean and then they don't say anything back, then you're like, okay, well, I guess they thought everything was okay. It doesn't really matter. I don't have to say anything, you know. Or if you shout at somebody in person and they're like, what the heck? Don't ever say that to me again, you know. Um, then you, you'd be afraid. Whoa, I don't want to say that. But if you shout at somebody online and then you turn off the computer, walk away, and then the, the person sitting there reading it and, and you're like, big deal. I don't care. I don't know what they're doing. You know, I said what I wanted to say. And, and there's no sensitivity as to how our words begin to affect other people. The last thing that they talk about, well, actually, there's like seven or eight, but this one I thought was, again, very interesting. It's called asynchronous, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, asynchronous communication. And again, if you look at the wording, you can probably figure out what it means. Asynchronous communication means conversations don't happen in real time. It means that you can say something to a person that's not really there and you can wait for them to read it. And then if they communicate back to you, then you can wait till whenever you feel like reading it. Or you don't even have to read it if you don't want to. You can ignore it. You can say, oh, they're sending me something back. Click, delete. Oh, they're trying to send something back again. Click, delete. Okay, put this, you know, block them now. I don't want to listen to any of their response because I know what their response is going to be. Block. That's asynchronous communication. It's saying that I can say anything whenever I want and I'll leave it on the table for them. And I can decide whether or not I want to receive what they want to say to me or how they want to respond to me, but I don't have to if I don't want to. And basically, again, all of these things, anonymity, invisibility, and the, the, the changing of this time of communication, it all leads to this lack of compassion, lack of empathy, sympathy, and lack of mercy. All the things that, 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 that the scriptures tell us are supposed to be a part of the way in which we communicate to each other, the way in which we care for each other, the way in which we, we respond to each other, is the way in which we continue to grow in how we can love each other and communicate better to each other. And we realize now that a lot of this communication online is actually working against the very things that scripture is trying to build into our lives as to how we treat one another. Uh, the skills of, of learning how to, 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 to communicate in a humble manner, to communicate in a caring manner, how to encourage people in our words, how to be able to see how our words are affecting other people so that we may be very sensitive and genuine in our love. Uh, we need to learn to love and, and to serve face to face. To say hello to a stranger. To not allow communication to just be at our convenience. So that's the thing, communication now is just at our convenience. It's like when I feel like talking to somebody, I can shoot something out. And when I feel like hearing from them, I can receive something back. But if I 
don't have time, I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, whatever. It's whatever is convenient for me, but meeting face-to-face -face means I've got to take time to meet with somebody and really talk. I have to take personal investment and time to really sit and listen, and I have to make sure that as we part, that, 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 that our communication has been good, that I can part knowing that, that we're good together in these things. And so if we're like we're on a computer all day and that's all we do, talk to people, it's like we're not real. It's not real life. He said, well, I'm talking to people, but yeah, kind of, but it's not real life. It's like, you know, you sit at home, and my wife always says, you know, Rita says, you know, you've been at your computer all day, which I have. She says, why don't you go outside, and, and you know, there's sunlight outside, honey, you know, go outside. So I said, oh, yeah, I click my screensaver, look at the sunlight for a little while. Okay, go back to work. You know, <laughs> but no, I don't do that, but I mean, that's what it's kind of like. It's kind of like, oh, talk to people, okay, I'll click, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that's not really talking with people. That's just communicating at your convenience. We need to really get out and be with people face to face and understand that relationships are very difficult, that we do say things that hurt people, and we have to take responsibility for those things, and we have to repair those things, sometimes right on the spot. We have to learn how to apologize for statements that are misunderstood or for anger that has been expressed in a bad way. We have to learn how to calm someone else down when they are angry at us and learn how to, to receive, uh, uh, receive criticism and how to respond. And we need to learn how to, to make sure that when we depart and, and when we finish, that we finish on good terms, that we understand how to care for one another, that we have some closure. These are all skills that are needed for community, for love. And these are the things that really can only happen as we continue um, to meet face to face and talk face to face and invest that time, set aside that time to go and meet someone, to, set, to, to arrange to go and, and have a lunch together, have a dinner together, say, hey, we need to sit down and talk and really sit down and talk as husbands and wives, not, okay, I'm gonna text you, I'm gonna text you and we're sitting in the same bedroom or whatever and texting each other. You should laugh, it happens, right? It does happen. You're laughing because it happens to you, right? Um, that's the real thing. And so now we look at all these cultural shifts in and, and our polarized community and we say, well, you know, is there hope in the task for discipleship in 2019, you know, as we are right now? Now, if you look at, going back to the passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says to Timothy, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You look at that last, that end of verse nine. The word of God is not bound. Now the irony of this statement is that 2 Timothy was one of Paul's last letters that he wrote from prison. And so Timothy, I mean Paul, even in this passage, he's talking about being bound with chains as a criminal that as he's speaking right now, he feels the weight of those chains. You know, when he pulls his hands up, they kind of fall down because he's got these shackles and these chains. They're chafing 
on probably, you know, he's got raw, his skin is raw from the chafing of the shackles on his, his feet or on his ankles and on his, um, his, his hands as he moves around. Whenever he moves, it hurts. He hears the cries of the other prisoners who are condemned to die. And, and, and if you look at this, and actually... Um, the prison that, that Paul was put in, they, they have an idea of what that prison might have looked like because this is one of those prisons that, that the Rome, ancient Rome had. It was actually underground. They just dug it into the rock, and it's like a, just this black hole on the surface. All you see is this black hole, and you go down into it, and there's this huge labyrinth with just um, cells and cells of things and uh, there's no light, you know, just some, some uh, torches. And they just leave them down there and forget them. Like, you know, when they die, then we'll take them and throw their body out and put the next guy in there. This is the kind of, of, of prison that Paul was in. And, and you think about this and say, wow, you know, you're in this place, this dark and forgotten place. And yet Paul says... Um, Unlike me, who is in chains in this dungeon, the word of God, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is free. The word of God is, has power. He says, the word of God, you can't stop it. Now, Paul's not talking about the Bible. He's not saying the Bible is, you know, is, is uh, not bound because they didn't even have a, a bound Bible yet. He's talking about the word of God, God's word lived out in the transformation, in the transformed lives of his disciples that he's writing to, that he's telling Timothy about. Saint Timothy, remind everyone who is outside now, who is afraid because of these end times because of, you know, the, the, the persecution or the sacrifice of the struggle. He says, remind these people constantly as they think about me in jail and they say, I hope I don't end up like Paul in jail. Don't let them be afraid. Remind them that, that, that the word of God is not bound. The word of God in you, you believers, you can go out and change this world and bring the Jesus Christ to every single part of the world, even while I'm in prison. And even if they put you in prison, it doesn't really matter matter because the word of God is going to continue to go out through his disciples and he's telling, uh, he's telling uh, uh, Timothy keep reminding people of this keep reminding the people of this no matter how dark things get and they're going to get darker and darker and that was in his time keep reminding people that that, that the God's word is not bound it is not bound we go to school and everybody says oh he's christian blah 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 and we're like i'm afraid to say anything i don't want to say anything god's word is not bound you go to work and everybody can say everything else about what they believe in and what their opinion is and everything like that and you start saying oh, i'm a christian i believe in they're like oh, we know what you're like and don't be afraid don't be intimidated word of god is not bound The power of the gospel is the good news of Jesus, and it continues to spread wherever Jesus' disciples go. It was that way in first century church. It was that way in the time of Paul. It's that way right now. We are Christians because of that, because it didn't stop. So I want to end with three questions that are related to what we've been looking at. First of all, the first question I want to ask is, what else can I do to become a man or a woman? of God's word. Now I'm saying, what else can I do? Meaning not just what am I doing right now, but what else can I do? What more can I do, more than what I'm doing now, to really become a man or woman of God's word? Because 
the world is depending on this. Second question, what worldly identity is becoming more important to me than my identity in Jesus? And this is like a self-searching one. This is like, okay, what are the things that are so important to me that I'd rather be identified with this than Jesus Christ? That I'm working so hard to be successful. Why? For Jesus? No, because success is really important to me. I want to be identified as one of the successful people. Or we say, well, I want to make a lot of money. Why? For the glory of Jesus Christ? Are you identified? No, I just want to make a lot of money because I want people to identify me as someone who made it. Someone who can be respected. Why am I getting all this, you know, uh, why am I getting this job or that job? Why, why do I want to do these things? Why am I working on this project, that project? Or why am I, uh, is it because of the glory of Jesus? Or because I just want people to recognize, oh, he's that type of person. She's that type of person. Oh, I really respect you. Or, oh, uh, at least she's not that type of person or whatever. What worldly identity is becoming more important to me than my identity in Jesus Christ? And what's God saying to me about that? How, how, how is he asking me to change that so that my identity is in Jesus Christ? And finally, how does God want me to reach across the divide? Is God really saying, are there people in my life right now that I, I still believe that they're wrong? We could say, I still believe that they're wrong, but they need to know Jesus Christ. They need to know that there's a Christian out there that won't judge them and hate them, but will reach out and, and love them and talk to them and spend time listening to their ideas, even though we may think, and honestly, we may think that their ideas are ridiculous. But probably that's what they think about all Christians. Uh, Christians think our ideas are ridiculous. They don't even want to listen. So how can we be those people like Jesus who will step across and, and talk to that Samaritan woman and say, you know, worship is not on this hill or that hill or in Jerusalem. Say, so, well, that's a crazy decision. Those Samaritans, what's wrong with them? Don't they know? No, they don't know. But they need Jesus. Jesus walked up and was willing to listen. And to, and, and, and to cross those borders so that, 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 that she would become a, a, a Christian. And all the Samaritans, too, would become Christians. Do you think the gay community can someday become Christian? I hope so. I wish so. Do you think the pro-lifers and the, 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 the pro-choicers can all become Christians someday? I hope so. But it's not going to happen unless we Christians really reach out and say, hey, they're, they're not just people like hateful people. They're people that need to know Jesus as Savior. No one's going to reach out to them, you know, if we don't. And so we do have to really change the way we think. And, and we're living in a, in a time when everybody's choosing their sides right now. But we're the ones that cross over the line. And we're the ones that reach out because that's what Jesus did and we're his followers. All right, let's, let's go ahead and spend some time in prayer and just think about these three things. What's God saying to you right now?
What's God saying in your heart right now?